Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This is Kent Washington, the first American and black basketball player to play professionally behind the Iron Curtain in communist Poland. You are listening to the Total Sports Recall podcast of the Sport History Network. Now here's your host, Har Aronson. Welcome to Total Sports Recall. I am your host, Harv Aronson. In today's podcast, I am recalling an article I wrote in June of 2020. This podcast will appeal to Major League Baseball fans as the focus is turned to baseball stadiums from the past. The article was titled, Major League Baseball Venues from the Past. For baseball fans that are 50 years old or older, I for one am 64, these folks will remember some of the old stadiums that teams played in that are now a distant memory. Incredibly, since the year 2000, 16 of the 30 Major League Baseball teams have opened new stadiums. That's more than half. If you include the 1990s, another seven teams debut in a new venue. The Toronto Blue Jays began to play in a new stadium in 1989, the Rogers Center, making it 24 of the entire slate of teams in Major League Baseball, dumping their old playing grounds for new ones, all since 1989. The other six teams... Still playing in old stadiums are the Kansas City Royals, Kauffman Stadium, opened in 1973, and the Los Angeles Angels, Angel Stadium, 1966, the Oakland Athletics, Oakland Coliseum, 1966, Los Angeles Dodgers, Dodgers Stadium in 1962, Chicago Cubs, Wrigley Field, 1914, and the Boston Red Sox in Fenway Park, 1912. The two oldest parks, Wrigley and Fenway, are historic. In Boston, it's the Green Monster. That's because the left field wall stands 37 feet, 2 inches. At the base of the wall is the scoreboard showing the tallies from around the National American Leagues, impressively updated by hand, a process that began in 1934. While older and equally famous stadiums like Yankee Stadium have been destroyed and replaced, Fenway Park remains an icon that can still house a baseball game 108 years and running. Out in Chicago, we find a stadium that just two years younger than Fenway Park is known for its outfield walls that are covered in the ivy plant. What else makes Wrigley Field unique are the rooftop seats located outside the stadium. Originally a freeway to see Cubs games, but would eventually give way to being charged for a seat. One irony regarding the Boston Red Sox and the Chicago Cubs is their shared agony of not playing in a World Series or winning one. For the Bo Sox in 1918, they won the World Series. They would not make it back there until 1946, 
and many blame this on the Babe Ruth curse. That's because the great Bambino was a player for Boston who was dealt to the New York Yankees, and the rest is history. Boston would get back to the Fall Classic in 1967, again in 1975, and one more time in 1986, only to lose them all. So finally in 2004, Boston won another World Series, making it 86 years between Major League Baseball championships. As for the Cubs, they suffered worse. A World Series title came in 1908 for the Cubbies, and after seven more appearances in baseball, 1935, 1938, 1945, Chicago finally got off the snide with the championship victory in 2016 after 108 years of waiting. Ironically, the Red Sox World Series win in 1918 came over those same Cubs. Like the Red Sox, the Cubs also were supposedly cursed. Chicago's black cloud came in the form of a goat. A bar named Billy Goat Tavern, owned by William Slantis, had a real goat as a mascot in 1945. He brought the animal to the 1945 World Series in a game number five, but was told he had to leave Wrigley Field because of it. So angered by his removal of himself and his pet, Slantis declared, them Cubs, they ain't going to win no more. True to his word, the Cubs never reached the World Series again for the remainder of Slantis' life, which ended with his passing in 1970. In those next 24 years from 1945, the Chicago Cubs played 500 ball or better just seven times and finished as high as second only twice, and those seasons came in 1969 and 1970. For historians of baseball, they will remember Chicago's story collapse of 1969 when they blew a first-place lead in September and watched the New York Mets pass them by and go on to win the World Series themselves. Getting back to our topic here, the Red Sox and the Cubs remain in their respective stadiums, the two oldest stadiums in Major League Baseball. Mentioned prior was Yankee Stadium, or better known as the house that Ruth built. That's because Babe Ruth called it home, and he is perhaps the greatest player ever in the history of baseball. Now comes the part where we look back at some of the baseball stadiums that are long gone, some of which readers may recognize and others that will leave you saying, I've never heard of that stadium. Yankee Stadium. The men in the pinstripes once shared a stadium with the Crosstown New York Giants playing in the old polo fields, and we'll get to that venue ahead. But on April 18, 1923, the Yankees christened their new house Yankee Stadium. First called Yankees Park in 1924, it formally took on the name of the team, followed by the word stadium. In the 1974 and 75 seasons, the stadium underwent renovations as age started to catch up with the facility. The Yankees would play their games at Shea Stadium while construction took place on the old stadium. Yankee Stadium stood for 24 more years until 2008 when the new Yankee Stadium was built and ready for usage as the house that Ruth built was dismantled. The unique aspect of Yankee Stadium old and new is their monument park, which put on, puts on display plaques of great Yankees players of the past. The Polo Grounds. While the Polo Grounds Stadium is long gone, there are probably many that do not know that this facility, while keeping its name, the word Polo Grounds, also applied to four stadiums put to use. The very first Polo Grounds was built for Polo teams to play in, and that year opened in 1980. The year was 1876. But it opened the doors to college football, baseball, and pro football. Because New York City was expanding its streets in 1889, their blueprint for a new venue, a new avenues, took it directly through the Polo Grounds. Ignoring objections, New York Governor David B. Hill had the stadium dismantled. The next Polo Grounds found itself in Manhattan in the borough of New York in an area called 
as Coogan's Bluff. The New York Giants of the National League called the stadium home, but it was referred to more as Manhattan Field. Adjacent to Manhattan Field was another stadium that would become Polo Grounds 3 as Manhattan Field became a parking lot. Polo Grounds 3 was originally named Brotherhood Park after a raging fire on April 14, 1911, that destroyed most of the stadium. Renovations took place, and the Polo Grounds was considered to have undergone enough changes that it should be called Polo Grounds 4. The most famous incident at the Polo Grounds took place on August 16, 1920, when the Cleveland Indians' Ray Chapman got plunked in the head from a pitch thrown by Yankee moundsman Carl Mays. The force of the impact sent Chapman to the hospital, where he later died, becoming the only player in Major League Baseball history to lose their life during an actual baseball game incident. The stadium would remain standing until it was taken down in 1964, with the New York Mets having called it home, but were waiting for Shea Stadium to be built. Ebbets Field. Thanks to Brooklyn Dodgers and their successes in the 1950s, Ebbets Field became known as a showcase the debut of Jackie Robinson, who was attributed to breaking the color barrier in Major League Baseball. But not just Ebbets Field, but the Dodgers themselves were doomed as calling New York City their home because not just the Dodgers, but the New York Giants as well, bolted the Big Apple for a West Coast location where they remain today in, in San Francisco and Los Angeles. That left just the Yankees in town until the New York Mets came along in 1962. As for Ebbets Field, the walls came crashing down in 1960, gone forevermore. Shive Park. When you think of baseball and the city of Philadelphia these days, you think Phillies. However, at the turn of the 20th century, the athletics were Phillies baseball team, led by the longtime manager and baseball Hall of Famer Connie Mack. Shide Park was the home for the Philadelphia Athletics, an outstanding baseball team that played in the stadium and would see it later to be known as Connie Mack Stadium. The venue opened in 1909 and would stand the test of time until it closed with a final game between the Philadelphia Phillies and the Montreal Expos on October 1st, 1970. 62 seasons were played at Shide Park, and with it, eight World Series played within its confines between the Athletics and the Phillies. Shide Park also hosted some great boxing matches, international soccer games, and even political events, as well as concerts, religious events, and circuses. The property land were eventually sold to the Deliverance Evangelistic Church, and their facility remains on the site of Shide Park to this day. See their original stadium come to the ground. Comiskey Park was conveniently named after its original owner, Charles Comiskey. The venue would last 80 years from 1910 until the final game was played within its confines in 1990. Comiskey Park was first called White Sox Park, but would then take on the name of the owner. It hosted soccer and football games, as well as American League baseball games in baseball. One bit of famous history belongs to the stadium as the first ever All-Star game took place at Comiskey Park in 1933. Some of the biggest names in history played in that first game. For example, Frankie Frisch, Pepper Martin, Chuck Klein, Carl Hubble, Lefty Gomez, Lou Gehrig, Joe Cronin, Babe Ruth, Lefty Grove, Bill Dickey, Jimmy Fox, Tony Lazzari, and the managers that day were John McGraw of the Giants in the National League and the legendary Connie Mack representing the Philadelphia A's for the American League. Comiskey Park was also one of the biggest and most, had one of the most biggest and most disaster events in any sports history, Disco Demolition, Demolition Night in 1979. A local DJ, radio DJ named Steve Dahl, 
Many, many who hated disco at that time, and so he proposed a demolition night where disco records would be blown up. Expecting, expecting a small crowd, it in fact became so well attended that fans were sneaking into the stadium, and once the records got destroyed, chaos erupted and the field torn to shreds. The event took place in between the games of a doubleheader, and the second game was forced to be canceled. Kaminsky Park's demise came in 1991 with the construction of a new stadium, and yet just another old classic stadium fell by the wayside. Jolly Park, before the old Montreal Expos, who are now the Washington Senators, moved into their Olympic Stadium in Canada, they played in a smallish and odd venue called Jolly Park. With a beginning seating capacity of just 3,000 fans, it was expanded to seat 28,456 by 1969. I clearly recall watching games being played at Jolly Park when I was growing up, and one of my memories sticks in my mind was that the outfit was a fence. Yes, a fence, and not an outfield wall. Adding insult to injury, and sometimes literally, is the fact that fences were not very high, so players chasing down fly balls could and did easily fly over the fence in their effort to make a catch. In fact, the fences were just five feet high. And as a Pittsburgh Pirates fan, of course, I remember Forbes Field Having gone one game there when I was age nine, funny story to that is that my father and I went to that game. A foul ball was hit, and I remember clearly that foul ball, foul ball rolling in front of our feet and both of us kind of just freezing and watching it roll on by and somebody else picked it up. But Forbes Field, what a better way to wrap up this stadium review than to go back in time with the stadium from my hometown and a facility I had the opportunity to visit just once. As I said, when I was nine years old, it's the former home of the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Steelers, among other teams. The old Forbes Field was a beautiful stadium in the old classic styles of sports facilities, and it stood in the Oakland section of Pittsburgh. Almost like Wrigley Field, I can recall standing on top of my grandmother's apartment building and being able to just barely see over the outdoor wall of Forbes Field and watch some of the games. It was not comparable to Chicago, where you could actually watch the game, but in Pittsburgh, the Forbes Field outfield was partially visible from that top of that building on North Craig Street. After playing baseball at Exhibition Park, the Pirates opened Forbes Field for play on June 30, 1909. It would remain open until Pittsburgh followed suit of other cities by building a cookie-cutter stadium called Three River Stadium in 1970. But some of the greatest Pirates ever took the field at Forbes Field, including the late, great Roberto Clemente, perhaps the city of Pittsburgh's biggest star athlete ever, and certainly one of the most beloved. Some fans protested the demolition of the venue, but it came down and was replaced by Three River Stadium, which gave way to their current PNC Park. And so that is a wrap for another podcast here on Total Sports Recall Network. I am your host, Harv Aronson. And uh, for those of you who have any comments or suggestions about the show or Total Sports Recall, they can be addressed to the show email at totalsportsrecall at gmail.com. You can reach out to me on Twitter using my handle at youtube.com forward slash at Total Sports Recall 59. If you are interested in purchasing any Total Sports Recall products, such as hats, shirts, or coffee mugs, be sure to visit the Sports History Network store, which can be found online using the URL location of www.shopsportshistory.com forward slash collections. Again, that is www.shopsportshistory.com sportshistory.com forward slash collections. So on behalf of all the old classic baseball stadiums that have gone by the wayside, 
Until next week, we have another podcast. This is Harv Aronson wishing everyone a great week ahead. The contents of this podcast do not represent the opinions of others and are solely the opinions of Harv Aronson based on his experience, knowledge, and research. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Do you wish you knew more about the 100 seasons of the NFL? You're in luck because you found the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. From the founding of the league in an auto showroom, all the way to what it is today, America's favorite sport and a behemoth of an industry. My name is Ernie Chapman. Football is my passion, and I want you to come along with me each week to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board, my DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.